from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, which can be found on page 27 in the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you have handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave! You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space. even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I read that Luke Akins has been skydiving uh, since he was 16 years old. Now 42, a husband and a father, he has recorded 18,000 jumps. 18,000 jumps. Three weeks ago, you may have seen this, Mr. Akins did something that no other person had done before. He jumped out of an airplane at 25,000 feet, and with no parachute and no wingsuit, he came to the ground and lived to tell about it. It was aired on Fox under the program heading, Heaven Sent. Millions watched him jump from the plane, and using only the air currents, 
They watched him safely maneuver and land in a 100-foot by 100-foot net. After I viewed his historic jump on social media, one question immediately came to mind. Why in the world would someone take that risk? Why in the world would someone take that risk? This morning, I'd like for us to get our minds and our hearts thinking about risk. About risk. Because this parable, I believe, in many ways, frames the kingdom of God, frames it in such a way that says, this kingdom is about risk. It's about risk. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Three servants are entrusted with a certain amount of a landowner's wealth. One talent equaled 15 years of earnings for a day laborer. One talent, 15 years for a day laborer. Let's say that in today's terms, using today's terms rather, that a day laborer makes $15 an hour for 40 hours of week, 40 hours of work rather, per week, 52 weeks in a given year, times 15, and you have a talent. In our economy today, that would equal $468,000, one talent, just under a half a million dollars. So this landowner, in today's terms, gives the first servant what amounts to be $2.3 million, and to the second, just under a million, and to the third, as I said, a half a million. Again, like the the parable of the unmerciful servant that we looked at a, a few weeks ago, this absurd amount of money has a point. It's to point to the incredible generosity of God, the incredible and absurd generosity of God. Jesus tells us that the first and second servants double what they had been given. We are not told, however, how they do it. I imagine that it's possible that one bought a large piece of property in Nazareth, developed it, flipped it, and sold it for a bigger profit. Or maybe they invested in the Galilean stock exchange. Did they buy commodities, government bonds? Did they short sale some stock? All kidding aside, we're not sure how they made a 100% Return, but somehow they did in and through a market or trading platform. The third servant, however, takes his half a million dollars. He digs a hole and buries it in the ground, the ancient equivalent of putting it under your mattress. When the master comes to settle accounts, we're told the first two are rewarded and the third is chastised as being both wicked and lazy. Now, reading this parable through the lens of risk first occurred to me after a conversation with one of our our members. He pointed out to me that the first two servants risk, they risk their master's wealth through some sort of capital exchange, some marketplace venture, whereas the third servant chooses not to risk at all. This member, who is a retired banker, said he even refused to choose the least 
risky option of all when it comes to capturing even a little bit of interest. He could have given it to the bankers, and even there, those bankers would have worked in such a way to accumulate some measure of interest, but he didn't even do that. And as we read through the parable, we come to find that what was important to the master was not how much the servants could make on his investment. What was important to the master was that the servants actually did something with the master's investment. In other words, it was the master's hope that they would take a risk, that they would take a risk in order to add more value to that which was already invested in them. Remember, this parable, if you were here last week, it's, it's, it's just sort of a continuation of Jesus' uh, discourse about, about the, the coming of the kingdom of God and, and even in some ways about the way God will come at the end of human history. And it's connected to this idea that, that the church should be awake, should stay awake, should, should keep watch not just for that end of history moment, but should stay awake for God's coming right now in real time. In our midst, that God has promised to continually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to show up, to continue to move in the world. And the scriptures are clear as they describe this coming, as they describe this movement, that when God shows up in real time, or when God shows up at the end of human history, that, that, that revelation, that showing up, brings with it, according to the scriptures, accountability and judgment. It brings accountability and judgment. It's like a, a medical checkup that, that we may have in a yearly way, or maybe we have a medical checkup in a, in a pretty routine way because we've had some illness or we've, or, or we've had some disability. Following a surgery for kidney cancer back in 2009, I was put on a a very detailed plan for follow-up. CAT scans, blood work, x-rays, ultrasounds, six months out, 12 months out, 18 months out, 24 months out. It's all part of a plan to take stock, to take account as to how I was doing. As to whether or not this cancer was eradicated from my body or, or did it show up in in my kidney again or in another place. And in the same way, when when God comes to us, when when God shows up, there is a moment in that engagement, whether it's in worship or it's in prayer or or whether it's in a meditative moment in solitude or, or whether it's in conversation with community or in a spiritual formation and discipleship platform or just comes to us in a moment, a random moment in the day where God just shows up. When that happens, the Spirit prompts us, I believe, to take account that when God shows up, there's always accountability as to our spiritual health, as to our faithfulness, as it relates to what God has put us in charge of. In this case, how we the servants, how we have stewarded the great abundance of things that God has put us in charge of so that we would steward them in such a way that would produce more abundance, a knowledge of more of God's grace and mercy 
and peace and reconciliation. There is stock taking. There is accountability when God shows up, when the master comes to see what we have done with the investment that God has made in us. It doesn't go well for the third servant when the master shows up. As New Testament scholar Douglas Hare put it, he is interested in safety, not service. He's interested in safety, not service. In other words, he's not interested in a life of stewardship. He's not interested in taking a risk with what God has endowed him with. What is more, he rejects one of the subtleties of the text. He rejects any responsibility for his actions. Did you catch this? This is like psychology 101. Blaming somebody else for your problems, blaming somebody else for your actions. You made me do this. What does he say? You're a harsh man, which is contrary to the generosity we see at the beginning of the parable. There's not a harshness there. There's a generosity, a great generosity. But, but he says, hey, you're a harsh man, and so I was afraid, and that's why I buried the treasure. And then second, he, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Did you notice this? At the end of this, when there's this great accounting, when there's this judgment, as the master comes to see how this investment is played out, what does the third servant say? Here, take it. I do not want it anymore. I don't want the responsibility. I don't want the gift. Here, it's all here. It's all accounted for. Here, you, you take it. But that servant misses the point. The master is not interested in the return. Not interested in the return. The master is interested in the effort. The master is interested in the risk to steward the abundant gifts that God has poured out in our lives. I'm thankful for this conversation I had with one of our members who opened my eyes to this interpretive key, looking at this text as a text describing what risk looks like in our relationship with God. And I've never used these terms before. I know others have. I did a little Google search as I was making my notes. I know others have, but I've never used these words before. That I believe that that Christians, that, 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 that friends of God, that followers of Jesus Christ should develop in their own life a theology of risk. A theology of risk. And within that theology, I believe there are three important affirmations that we must make as it shapes our life of fidelity with God. First and foremost, we have to keep this in front of us, that God is a risk-taking God. That God is a risk-taking God. The God who creates in freedom is the God who grants us freedom. The God who creates in freedom gives us freedom. Freedom to love God or to reject God. Freedom to love our neighbor or to reject our neighbor. Freedom to love ourselves or to reject ourselves, and the freedom to steward and risk for the kingdom or to simply bury our gifts in a hole that we've dug with our own hands. The, the mid to latter weeks of August into early September see many recent high school uh, graduates leaving the nest to begin their first semester of college. Many of our families here 
are experiencing this. In fact, as I was greeting people last week, I saw a dad who just sent his eldest child off to school thinking that I should have some concern for his wife, his daughter's mother. I said, well, well, how is she doing? He said, forget her. I'm a total wreck. Many of us have gone through this season. Many of us still have this season to look forward to. Besides the the pure emotion of having your son or daughter head off to school, there is a certain felt anxiety that stems from the conscious or even subconscious awareness that their child has freedom. Freedom. After all the moral and religious and social training these parents have sought to instill in their child, the child has more freedom than they've ever had before to make good choices or harmful ones. The parent, of course, wouldn't want it any other way, despite the risk. Despite the risk. Their letting go and launching their child from out of the shadow of their wings is risky. It is risky. But at the same time, it is a deep expression of love and a deep expression of respect for the child's freedom. It's a deep expression of respect for the child's freedom. If if we could take that experience, and I know many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, if we could take that experience and multiply it by a million, we would just be scratching the surface of understanding God's choice to create in freedom and God's choice to give us freedom. That's a risk God takes. Because we can choose God or reject God. We could choose safety or we can choose stewardship. Any theology of risk must begin with an acknowledgement that God is a risk-taking God. And to verify that truth, we have to look no further than our own freedom. Than our own freedom. Second, a shorter point, any theology of risk must clearly acknowledge that the gifts endowed to us, the investment that God has made in us, the gifts that God has put us in charge of, those gifts are not insignificant. Your life, my life, is not inconsequential. We've been given so much. I think of the words from the psalmist, 139th Psalm, I I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do Do you know this verse? This is one of those verses I think we should commit to memory. I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We've been given time and skill and insight and wisdom and friendships and family and money and opportunities that should be stewarded in such a way as to bear witness to the generosity of God to the kingdom of God. I mean, just think about it in your own life, no matter where you are in this stage of life, think about the abundance of good gifts that God has poured out in your life. Think about all that God has called you and me to steward. Not one of us could ever look at our lives and say, we do not have enough. Because we do. We do. We have everything that we need to be faithful. God is a risk-taking God, and God is a generous God pouring out into our lives abundant gifts. 
And finally, I'll close with this. Any theology of risk, any theology of risk must keep in mind that being a Christian is a risk-taking enterprise. It's a risk-taking enterprise. Albert Einstein once said, a ship is always safe at the shoreline. A ship is always safe at the shoreline, but that is not what a ship is built for. In a similar way, the church was not created to sit on the sidelines. Life and faith is always safe in the pews. It's always safe in the pews. But pew sitting alone is not what God intended for us when the Lord entrusted us with so many gifts. You know, this morning we, we had the pleasure of hosting Reverend Salam Hannah, who was here at the 8.30 service, taught at the 9.30, and he's at North Avenue Church right now, leading in worship with their congregation. He's a sixth-generation Presbyterian and a pastor from Syria. After serving for a decade as a pastor, war broke out, as you know, and that the refugee crisis that has emerged from this war is one of the great crises of our time. Reverend Salam, instead of fleeing, and I have friends in Amar, Syria, I know this, I know this area, friends who, who had to flee, Christians who had to flee because their lives were in danger. But, but Reverend Salam, instead of fleeing, had a different call. He was trained in disaster relief and development work by the Presbyterian Church USA, and he's now heading this work in the Synod of Syria and Lebanon. He is the chief officer of relief work in that area. He's risked his life. He's risked his life to stay present in Syria and the surrounding region for the sake of God's mission. Those kinds of risks for Western Christians are hard to fathom. Let's just name it and leave it like that. It's hard to fathom those risks. And yet that church in Syria is the same church we're called to be here in Atlanta. A church that Reverend Salam describes as the channel of God's love, mercy, peace, and justice on earth. This is what it, it's meant to be. That's what it's here for. This gospel is the reason for its existence, presence, and mission. The church is not a religious sect among other sects. It is not a closed and fearing community. It's not a pious group that only cares for its own prayers and rituals and thus separates itself from society. The church, he says, is meant to change the surrounding society in its mind, heart, values, and principles. It will face challenges, but God is with her. I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of discipleship I want that kind of vision for our church. So what risks are we willing to take with that which God has put us in charge of, individually and collectively? Individually, will, will we invite someone to church? Oh, I know in today's, in today's age, inviting someone to church is somewhat risky. 
Will you share your faith? Another risky prospect, actually using words. We Presbyterians, for the non-Presbyterians in the room, we love to share our faith through works. We love that. But when you ask us to talk about our faith, that's a, that's a little more risky for us. But to actually, in the words of 1 Peter, to articulate and describe the hope that is within us. Will you finally act on what you've been talking about doing for weeks or for years? Will you give more money away for the promotion of the gospel? Will you finally answer the call? And I am confident that some of you who are in this sanctuary or watching online will see this on demand, that some of you have been wrestling with a call for ministry, to be a pastor, to pursue the ministry of word and sacrament. Maybe now's the time to risk that move. Or maybe you'll risk volunteering to be a Sunday school teacher for middle school kids. <laughs> or the youngest among us. Or you'll participate in one of our many community ministry opportunities or our global partnerships. Or maybe you'll, you'll run a video camera for our broadcast ministry. Maybe you'll take a risk to become a Stephen minister, or maybe you'll take a risk to participate in refugee resettlement right here in Atlanta. Maybe you'll take a risk and visit someone in prison or someone who's homebound. Being a participant in the kingdom of God is about knowing that we worship and follow a risk-taking God. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom. It means to acknowledge the fact that God has given us so much, and this God expects, I believe this, that God expects us to take risks. To take risks with that which God has put us in charge. And so, friends, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, I leave us all with this question. What risks, what risks are you willing to take? Amen. As we conclude uh, this morning's worship, I am reminded that we've had a very full weekend in the life of our congregation. On Friday, we held a memorial service right here. The congregation, as it is this morning, was packed for Jeffrey Bramlett, one of our elders, and I was so thankful for the ways in which this church uh, showed up, our staff and volunteers to provide hospitality and great welcome to all who came uh, to give God thanks for Jeff's life. And then yesterday, we had a wedding right here. These two rows were full, these two sections. And the wedding coordinators that do a wonderful job of hospitality and welcome for those families that, that come. And then today, culminating in baptism and with worship and another full sanctuary. I'm reminded of how many gifts we have been given to walk with people in hard times and in joyful times in times where we're looking for some direction, in times where we're looking for a little guidance. What a gift this church is. If this is your first time with us and you're looking for a church home, there's plenty of room for you to be part of this risk-taking community in the days ahead. And as we go from this place, may the peace of Christ, which goes beyond all understanding, may guard your hearts and your minds in him. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life.